I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. came to Kamala because I had been told that my father, a man named Pedro Paramo, lived there. It was my mother who told me, and I had promised her that after she died I would go see him. I squeezed her hands as a sign I would do it. She was near death, and I would have promised her anything. Don't fail to go see him, she had insisted. Some call him one thing, some another. I'm sure he will want to know you. At the time, all I could do was tell her I would do what she asked. And from promising so often, I kept repeating the promise even after I had pulled my hands free of her death grip. Still earlier she had told me, Don't ask him for anything, just what's ours what he should have given me, but never did. Make him pay, son, for all those years he put us out of his mind. I will, mother. I never meant to keep my promise, but before I knew it, my head began to swim with dreams and my imagination took flight. Little by little, I began to build a world around a hope centered on the man called Pedro Paramo, the man who had been my mother's husband. That was why I had come to Kamala. That was a passage from the opening of Juan Rulfo's Pedro Paramo, which was originally published in Spanish in 1955. The book is published by Serpent's Tale, the translation is by Margaret Sayers Pedern, and the readings in this episode are by Jakub Blank. The book concerns the journey of a young man to his mother's native village of Kamala, where he will search for his father, the elusive figure Pedro Paramo. What he finds upon his arrival is a ghost town, the spectral image of a once vital community, whose voices rise up to assail him with lamentations from beyond the grave. Somewhere within this chorus of the dead unfolds the tale of the landowner, Don Pedro, whose iron grip upon the town may well have been the source of its desolation. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this seminal work of Mexican magical realism. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So 
So welcome to episode 32 of Sherd's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum and I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, Rob? Oh yeah, very good, Sam. Glad to hear it, man. Today we're talking about the 1955 Mexican novel Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo, early example of magical realism and uh, I suppose a, a great classic of Mexican literature. How did you get on with this one, Rob? Yeah, really, really loved it. As you know, kind of read it. I was trying to work out exactly how long ago, maybe over 10 years ago now, originally, when we were both working for a, a bookshop that will remain unnamed, uh, <laughs> recommended by a mutual friend of ours and loved it then. But having since spent some time in Mexico with my brother who lives there, it, yeah, came alive in a completely different way. And yeah, it's just a really, really amazing piece of literature, I thought, well deserving of its status. And you'd read it before as well, right, Sam? Yeah, I read it, I think, on, on your recommendation. And I'm thinking it was probably around 12 or 13 years ago, something like mm. that, because I think we read it around around the same time. On this occasion, it was, we should say, actually, it was a request from Daniel Mills, who's been tremendously supportive of the show and, you know, he's posted about us and so on. And he also did the readings for our episode on Samuel R. Delaney's Dahlgren. So if anyone's interested in hearing that, they can go and listen to that episode. But yeah, thanks for the suggestion, Daniel. Yeah, I'd read it before and this was quite a a strange one for me because it was a, a complete shift in opinion for me about the book there's quite a rare sort of turnaround in my impressions of it you loved it originally and now you hate it right yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> no no i suppose i mean i suppose i could say it rarely happens because you often you don't often go back to books that you didn't enjoy so much mm. but yeah on this occasion i absolutely loved it but when i first read it it just didn't make an enormous impression on me and i, I find it quite difficult to imagine why because reading it this time i a absolutely adored it i found it completely mesmerizing and just wanted to savor every single page kind of captivated all the way through and i just felt so much more invested this time round. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that your taste can change or, I don't know, your preoccupations or it might just be the mood that you happen to be in um, mm. reading something. But I seem to recall wanting to rush through it at the time and that's obviously not the way to, to read this. I'd considered going back to it for a long time as well because it's thought of and it's spoken of as, as a classic and a masterpiece and held in really, really high regard by lots of people and lots of writers so i was definitely wrong it turns out <laughs> about this one um, another interesting thing is that both of us found that our original copies had gone missing right i think we both said we agreed to do it and then said all right let's i'll go and get my copy and both of them had disappeared mysteriously <laughs> i i in fact spoke to my brother to ask if i'd lent it to him before he went mm. to mexico and um he said no i hadn't but that weirdly, someone not that long ago had come up to him in the street and just handed him a copy in Spanish. So oh, wow. it's, a, it's a kind of like magical realist element even to the whereabouts of the book. Yeah, I think you said that uh, there's probably a desert somewhere in Mexico just full of copies of Pedro Paramo. <laughs> so that's probably where ours have turned up. But no, I, f I found it yeah, incredibly atmospheric. I was really moved by it this time as well. There's a real mm. pathos that runs through the book. 
I love especially as well how embedded it is in its region and its its history, which is something I I didn't recall so much from my first reading, but seemed to me really crucial this time round. One criticism, I suppose, and I don't know if you agree with this, Rob, but I get the sense that the translation is a little bit inconsistent or slightly clunky. I mean, I, that could be. Mm. It could be a bit of a heretical opinion, I don't know, but um, did you feel that at all? I, I do agree a bit, and I have actually read it as well. Not necessarily a criticism of the translation, but part of what makes this a, such a phenomenal book and so popular in its original Spanish is that, yeah, just the beauty of the language and how that actually doesn't necessarily come across so well in English. I, I suppose where I noticed it most is not, not always in the descriptive passages, although I do think occasionally they, they don't feel as quite as well wrought as one might hope but I, I felt it particularly with regard to the dialogue mm. some strange choices were made and there's a kind of inconsistency of, of dialect and I imagine that in the original that we've most likely got much more accurate and grounded uh, sort of regional usage of, of Spanish in there which is something I can't really comment on but yeah I found some of the dialogue and the exchanges a little bit I felt that they they took me out of the book a little bit it's always a tricky thing isn't it translating regional accents or things like that yeah absolutely and I read I don't actually have it to hand but I found quite a funny table of um, sentence length in popular Mexican fiction and uh, it was comparing Juan Rulfo to other Gabriel Garcia Marquez and other people and the sentences are extremely short in comparison to a lot of people mm. contemporaries and also people that come after so yeah I think there's a there's a simplicity into the language which is probably deceptively quite difficult to get across it's interesting you mention uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez because he wrote the introduction to my edition have you got the same one Rob do you have his his introduction as well no it's quite nice it's sort of a little personal response to to the book and his first encounter with it and he describes how when he first read it he couldn't sleep until he'd, he'd read it twice that very night and later describes as well being able to recite the book essentially front to back without an appreciable error so clearly made an enormous impression on him it did make me sort of lament the fact that i don't have spanish you know, it's always something I'm thinking of going back to study, obviously, because it's my mother's first language and so on. I dearly love to have access to this in its in its original mm. language. Yeah, definitely. But I'm also interested to know, in making your notes, did you, because obviously it's kind of short enough to read it twice, did you sort of go back to it in a, a longer way? No, I didn't reread it exactly. I went back to certain certain passages. I sort of did do that because I, I wasn't intending on it and I went back to kind of pick out bits for, you know, that I'd highlighted to make notes and just sort of ended up getting sucked into it again. Yeah. It was a very interesting experience because I think on, on first reading, the very structure of the book is deliberately very confusing mm. but on second reading it was a bit like uh getting all the pieces of a puzzle and putting them out on the table and that's kind of the first reading and then the mm. second reading is putting them all together to make a coherent picture like things that didn't make sense and not in a problematic way but just in that was the nature of the book suddenly i could i knew exactly what was happening at each step it was mm. a very interesting process to to read it through twice and i imagine if you were to read it through twice in one sitting it would, it would highlight that even more yeah like so, suddenly some coming into focus and it brought a lot of stuff home it's yeah it's really interesting so rob do you have some information about juan rulfo's 
life? So yeah, he's born in uh, 1917 in a place called Apulco in Jalisco state. The family that he's born into is a kind of family of wealthy landowners, but their fortunes are kind of destroyed really by first the Mexican Revolution and then the following the Cristero War, which kind of follows hot on the heels of that. The latter one was a kind of Catholic revolt against a proposed secularisation of, of Mexico by the government that comes out of the Mexican Revolution. And these are things obviously that the book we're looking at today is, is totally set within this time. During that revolutionary period, both his father and two uncles are assassinated in kind of a land dispute, seemingly. And then his mother dies in 1927, so still within that war period, of a heart attack. And I think it's, you know, there's a romantic idea of a death of a broken heart. Rulfo himself, I think, in the interview, describes his childhood as very rough, describes difficulty of living in such a devastated area with like widespread destruction and obviously an enormous toll on human lives. He describes never finding the logic behind the assassinations and other acts of cruelty that kind of happen in this period. And uh, you know, this book is certainly not searching for the logic. I think it really lays out the illogic of that time. And it's obviously something that's stayed with him hugely. With both his parents dying, he then is sent. And there's conflicting information here. Some sources I've read said that he goes to live with his grandparents. Others say that he goes to study in a kind of school for orphans. Although actually I think the Luis Silva school is that's not up to a debate he definitely was there uh, and he's there from 1928 to 32 there's also this really nice story which again I've only found in one source but apparently at the end of the Cristero era the local priest apparently goes to join the rebels and leaves his library which is full of books that the Catholic Church had forbidden <laughs> And so uh, Rulfo suddenly has access to these kind of forbidden books. Yeah, he completes his elementary school and apparently he does a special seventh year from which he graduated as a bookkeeper. But he doesn't become a bookkeeper immediately. He uh, goes to a seminary school from 1932-34, but doesn't attend university in part to do with the strike and in part to do with the fact that he hadn't taken the correct school courses. So anyway, he then moves to Mexico City, where he joins a military academy and then leaves very quickly. And then he hopes to study law at the huge university in Mexico City, the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Mexico. But he's only able to audit classes there. And he does that by obtaining a job as an immigration file clerk at the university. (laughs) So then he uh, it's kind of at this point in Mexico City that he marries his wife, Clara Angelina Aparicio Reyes. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, and they're married in Guadalajara, the huge city in Jalisco. But it's also at this point at university that he begins writing. Despite not being a full university student, just auditing these classes, he co-founds a literary journal called Pan, which is quite, I've only just realised this, but that just means bread. <laughs> Obviously, I was thinking of uh, some other things. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> literally, the literary journal bread. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of continues traveling throughout Mexico and continues with his career as an immigration agent. This is kind of it until he obtains a fellowship to the Centro Mexicano de Escritores, which I guess is the Mexican Center for Writers. And it's at that point between 1952 and 1954 that he's able to write the two very acclaimed books, one of which, of course, is Pedro Paramo. And the other is... uh, The Burning Plain. Burning Plain. There we go. Yeah, the collection of short stories. The initial response to these books uh, is kind of cool, but Pedro Paramo sells 2,000 copies in its first four years, so really not too many. (laughs) 
obviously it kind of grows in stature and becomes far more highly acclaimed. And you kind of think, I don't know what you think, but reading this now and thinking about this book being written in the late 40s and early 50s, it's quite quite remarkable. And you can kind of see why perhaps it wasn't quite as uh, popular as it is now, especially given that, you know, this is very much a book about kind of rural poor in Mexico. Uh, mm. So not only is it stylistically quite difficult at times, but just in terms of its subject matter, I can't imagine there was a huge amount being written about that at the time. Marquez describes arriving in Mexico in the early 60s and he hadn't heard or, you know, hadn't heard of Juan Rulfo at the time. Mm. So I don't know how widespread his reputation was by that stage. Interestingly, the book did undergo a couple of potential different names. A Star Next to the Moon was one that was apparently written in a, in a couple of letters to his fiancée at the time. And then also The Murmurs. And that was mm. a, a title that almost became the real title. It was quite late on and then was changed. I quite like that year. title. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to me there's a pivot within the, the middle of the book where things suddenly change. And it is it is that point when the, these kind of murmurs appear. But anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> yeah, Rolfo works on another novella called The Golden Cockerel. After this, sort of in the in the later 50s, although it wasn't published until 1980, in fact, and then kind of republished posthumously with revisions. But by 1970, there's definitely an appreciation of this work, and he's awarded Mexico's National Prize of Letters. The Rulfo Foundation also has fragments of two unfinished novels that haven't been published, and there's a story that Rulfo himself tells that there was a, a novel set in Mexico City, which I would have loved to read, but um, he destroyed it himself so we unfortunately mm. never will so quite slim output then it's, mm. it's not not very yeah. much published in his lifetime yeah 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 really really not and he's you know really very reclusive and doesn't really have very much kind of public persona there's a really nice anecdote which uh, comes from a kind of like new yorker biography of him in which uh, a novelist antonio scarmetta i don't quite know how you pronounce that but tells that um he was about to be interviewed for a TV show one day in Buenos Aires and he uh, sees Borges and Rulfo coming out of the studio and he asks Borges how it went and he replies, very well indeed. I talked and talked and once in a while Rulfo intervened with a moment of silence. <laughs> Which I quite like. Which seems to, yeah, sum things up quite nicely. As you say, like a very a kind of slim output. But really interestingly, from the point of these early works coming out to the end of his life he kind of dedicates it to working for the institute for indigenous studies project working on the socio-economic development of the settlements along the pamplonan river and then more widely just as the director of the editorial department of this institute so writes numerous anthropological and archaeological studies of the groups and edits a lot of works as well yeah and this is this is kind of what he does until his death in 1986 for me knowing a very 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 small amount about the kind of like indigenous groups within Mexico I found it fascinating to think of that within the context of Pedro Paramo and so it was quite interesting to see that he had actually spent so much of his life looking at that a very slim but incredibly powerful body of work he ends up doing I suppose academic work despite not really going through the same pathway that one one might expect yeah 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 yeah, absolutely oh and I forgot to say yeah he does work as a kind of mentor for for younger writers at the center for Mexican authors so he is kind of involved in that in some way but 
yeah, his, his kind of energies seem to be slightly more focused in this more political kind of anthropological studies rather than firmly within the literary movements of the time. And he dies in 1986, is that right? 1986, yeah. Yeah, his reputation only seems to have grown since then. Even in, in English, this is quite a highly regarded classic text isn't it mm. but not one that you see thrown around that much you know when magical realism comes up it's not immediately the first text that is spoken of but it does seem to have been a huge influence on that genre um, or a sort of touchstone for writers working within that tradition the road rose and fell it rises or falls depending on whether you're coming or going if you are leaving it's uphill but as you arrive, it's downhill. What did you say that town there is called? Kamala, senor. You're sure that's Kamala? I'm sure, senor. It's a sorry looking place. What happened to it? It's the time, senor. I had expected to see the town of my mother's memories, of her nostalgia. Nostalgia laced with sighs. She had lived her lifetime sighing about Kamala, about going back, but she never had. Now I had come in her place. I was seeing things through her eyes as she had seen them. She had given me her eyes to see. Just as you pass the gate of Los Colimotas, there's a beautiful view of a green plain tinged with the yellow of ripe corn. From there, you can see Kamala turning the earth white and lightening it at night. Her voice was secret, muffled, as if she were talking to herself. Mother, and why are you going to Kamala, if you don't mind my asking, I heard the man say. I've come to see my father, I replied. Hmm, he said. And again, silence. We were making our way down the hill to the clip-clop of the burrow's hooves. Their sleepy eyes were bulging from the August heat. You're going to get some welcome. Again, I heard the voice of the man walking at my side. They'll be happy to see someone after all the years no one's come this way. After a while, he added, Whoever you are, they'll be glad to see you. In the shimmering sunlight, the plain was a transparent lake, dissolving in mists that veiled a gray horizon. Farther in the distance, a range of mountains, and farther still, faint remoteness. And what does your father look like, if you don't mind my asking? I never knew him, I told the man. I only know his name is Pedro Paramo. Hmm, that's so? Yes, at least that was the name I was told. Yet again, I heard the burro's drivers. Hmm. I had run into him at the crossroads called Los Encuentros. I had been waiting there, and finally this man had appeared. Where are you going? I asked. Down that way, senor. Do you know a place called Comala? 
that's the very way I'm going. So I followed him. I walked along behind, trying to keep up with him, until he seemed to remember I was following and slowed down a little. After that, we walked side by side, so close our shoulders were nearly touching. Pedro Paramos, my father too, he said. A flock of crows swept across the empty sky, shrilling, caw, caw, caw. Up and downhill we went, but always descending. We had left the hot wind behind. We were sinking into pure, airless heat. The stillness seemed to be waiting for something. It's hot here, I said. You might say, but this is nothing, my companion replied. Try to take it easy. You'll feel it even more when we get to Kamala. That town sits on the coals of the earth, at the very mouth of hell. They say that when people from there die and go to hell, they come back for a blanket. Do you know Pedro Paramo? I asked. I felt I could ask because I had seen a glimmer of goodwill in his eyes. Who is he? I pressed him. Living bile was his reply. So you described the book and reading it a second time as putting a, a jigsaw back together, which I think is a really interesting way to think about the structure of the book. But it has quite a few peculiarities, doesn't it? It's quite a polyphonic experience constructed of a multitude of voices, most of which speak from beyond the grave. And eventually, you know, I came to think of it as a kind of chorus of the dead. It becomes almost entirely that at a certain point in the novel. Yeah, so we're initially confronted with what feels like a, a stable narrative voice, this character of Juan Preciado, a young man who, after the death of his mother, returns to her native village in order to find his, his father. But before long, we are confronted with lots of other intrusive voices. Firstly, the voice of his mother, and that's usually indicated by italics, at least to begin with. But in most cases, there's no indication, or at least very little indication, in initially at least, of who might be speaking at any given point. The text is kind of fragmented and broken up into these these various different different voices i really enjoyed that i think that's a huge part of the pull for me that feeling of uncertainty that came with that technique and you know maybe mirrors juan preciado's experience within the the text at the beginning sort of unbalanced every time you encounter one of these new voices or even when it's a familiar one you continually have to gradually determine who is speaking or which time period we're dealing with what the relationship with the rest of the story this particular passage has you know obviously I, I kind of knew it was coming this time but it's still it's still wrong foots you I'm trying to think of anything else to compare it to that you know it's absolutely just not signposted you know you 
move from sentence to sentence and sometimes it's as much as seeing kind of the end of a quotation mark or something that you you realize that actually if you move to an entire different place and time and you're seeing things through a different character's eyes i think we can see things like that in in modernism you know perhaps in Hmm. virginia wolf she often uses this floating consciousness will zoom into a character's point of view and then fly off somewhere else but it's not quite it doesn't feel quite as fragmented as this i think we really just jump from one to the other i found something very interesting that it does in terms of the reader's emotional investment in the different characters because it does something very clever in terms of the titular character of pedro paramo where obviously he's this you know like very evil kind of like almost to the point of mythologically evil that the by the end of the book the entire town and local surrounding countryside is a is a complete wasteland because of his actions Mm. but yet especially in the earlier stages of the book in flipping between from one person's perspective to his person's perspective it might take a few paragraphs before we even realize that we're seeing things through his eyes and we aren't necessarily as critical as we might be because we might think it's another character if that makes sense or uh, yeah like we don't bring our prejudice to to the exactly and so yeah it does does a very interesting job of humanizing this character who at the same time actions quite genuinely not that of a (laughs) a particularly nice person even if they are perhaps human and yeah i guess does a does a very good job of suggesting that even pedro paramo is a product of certain circumstances which is perhaps something that Rufo is is trying to get to the heart of for me it was like almost like a joke of like oh no hang on we're with Pedro Paramo now I'm, I'm meant to not like him oh. yeah, yeah yeah it's an interesting connection you make between the the fragmentation this idea that the fragmentation humanizes Pedro Paramo to a degree that is part of the impact of the structural strategy of the of the book I suppose I mean there are lots of strange things about the the structure I suppose and one really striking one is that the narrator figure and the person whom whom we've come to regard as the main protagonist of the book falls ill and dies about halfway (laughs) through it but this doesn't seem to interrupt the story at all you know this figure Juan Preciado becomes sort of subsumed into the chorus of these other voices and eventually maybe even over overwhelmed by it and I, I really enjoyed that. I think I, I hadn't remembered it from my previous reading. And I remember texting you mm. just saying like, wait a second, is the narrator dead? Um, <laughs> <laughs> or does he, does he die at a certain point? And it's really beautifully done, I think. The heat woke me just before midnight. And the sweat, the woman's body, was made of earth, layered in crusts of earth. It was crumbling, melting into a pool of mud. I felt myself swimming in the sweat streaming from her body, and I couldn't get enough air to breathe. I got out of bed. She was sleeping. From her mouth bubbled a sound very like a death rattle. I went outside for air, but I could not escape the heat that followed wherever I went. There was no air, only the dead, still night fired by the dark days of August. Not a breath. I had to suck in the same air I exhaled, cupping it in my hands before it escaped. I felt it, in and out, less each time, until it was so thin 
it slipped through my fingers forever. I mean, forever. I have a memory of having seen something like foamy clouds swirling above my head, and then being washed by the foam and pinking into the thick clouds. That was the last thing I saw. Are you trying to make me believe you drowned Juan Preciado? I found you in the town plaza, far from Donis's house. And he was there too, telling me you were playing dead. Between us, we dragged you into the shadow of the arches, already stiff as a board and all drawn up like a person who died of fright. If there hadn't been any air to breathe that night you're talking about, we wouldn't have had the strength to carry you, even less bury you. And as you see, bury you, we did. You're right, Doroteo. You say your name's Doroteo. Doesn't matter. It's, it's really Doroteo, but it doesn't matter. It's true, Doroteo. The murmuring killed me. There, you'll find the place I love most in the world. The place where I grew thin from dreaming. My village, rising from the plain. Shaded with trees and leaves like a piggy bank filled with memories. You'll see why a person would want to live there forever. Dawn, morning, midday, night. Always the same. Except for the changes in the air. The air changes the color of things there. And life wears by as quiet as I murmur pure murmuring of life. Yes, Dorothea, the murmuring killed me. I was trying to hold back my fear, but it kept building until I couldn't contain it any longer. And when I was face to face with the murmuring, the dam burst. I went to the plaza. You're right about that. I was drawn there by the sound of people. I thought there really were people. I wasn't in my right mind by then. I remember I got there by feeling my way along the walls as if I were walking with my hands. And the walls seemed to distill the voices. They seemed to be filtering through the cracks and crumbling mortar. I heard them, human voices, not clear, but secretive voices that seemed to be whispering something to me as I passed like a buzzing in my ears. I moved away from the walls and continued down the middle of the street, but I still heard them. They seemed to be keeping pace with me, ahead of me, or just behind me. Like I told you, I wasn't hot anymore, just the opposite. I was cold. From the time I left the house of that woman who let me use her bed, the one I told you, I'd seen dissolving in the liquid of her sweat. From that time on, I'd felt cold. And the farther I walked, the colder I got. Until my skin was all goosebumps. I wanted to turn back. I thought that if I went back, I might find the warmth I'd left behind. But I realized after I walked a bit farther that the cold was coming from me from my own blood. 
then I realized I was afraid. I heard all the noise in the plaza, and I thought I'd find people there to help me get over my fear. That's how you came to find me in the plaza. So Donis came back after all. The woman was sure she'd never see him again. It was morning by the time we found you. I don't know where he came from. I didn't ask him. Well, anyway, I reached the plaza. I leaned against a pillar of the arcade. I saw that no one was there, even though I could still hear the murmuring of voices, like a crowd on market day. A steady sound with no words to it, like the sound of the wind through the branches of a tree at night when you can't see the tree or the branches, but you hear the whispering, like that. I couldn't take another step. I began to sense that whispering drawing nearer, circling around me, a constant buzzing like a swarm of bees, until finally I could hear the almost soundless words tray for us. I could hear that's what they were saying to me. At that moment, my soul turned to ice. That's why you found me dead. I read a few bits and pieces about the book's structure and I was quite struck by one article by a scholar called Elizabeth Sanchez and she describes the book's structure as fractal, which I thought was quite curious. Yeah, I can read you a little bit of what she says about it. She says, We might say that Rulfo has produced an artistic object that looks very much like a fractal in its unwieldy surface structure and that he has intentionally increased the complexity of his work by first breaking the story into bits and pieces, which in turn may contain smaller self-similar bits and pieces, and then ordering the segments in such a manner that they reveal much more about his story, and in fewer words, than a traditional sequential ordering would. Whereas it is possible to view the novel as a mosaic to be pieced together, or, you know, which is similar to your idea, Rob, or as a broken mirror, I prefer the metaphor of the fractal precisely because it brings the idea of the mirror into play by inviting readers to look for recursive symmetry at the same time that it suggests a comparison with a mosaic whose fractured pieces readers must reorder one by one if they hope to discover a recognisable form hidden within the fragments. So I suppose that brings a, another layer to the fragmentation, but I don't know in, if I'm entirely convinced by it. I mean, there there's obviously more to this argument, and the writer points out some of these symmetrical features like the way that these two main threads of the novel so Juan Preciado's narrative and Pedro Paramo they mirror each other and each narrative kind of dominates the respective halves of the text and she picks up on these circular features like the first and last words of Pedro Paramo that we hear are almost identical to each other. I mean, I think it's unlikely that Rulfo took this approach because I think a detailed understanding of fractals wouldn't come until a little bit later. But I know, for instance, that writers have used geometric figures like this as the sort of structural foundations of their works. Have you heard this? interesting interview with david foster wallace on bookworm 
Rob, with Michael Silverblatt when he published uh, Infinite Jest. Have you come across that? No, I don't think I have. I mean, it's quite an amazing moment. Uh, maybe I can c- include a, a clip of it because Michael Silverblatt, the host of that of that program, which is amazing, I think, asks him the first question is um, essentially, was this book Infinite Jest written in fractals or with a fractal structure and it transpires that he's essentially right that the the book is modeled on this Sierpinski gasket an early form or an earlier kind of determination of uh, fractals i don't know how exactly to talk about this book so i'm going to be reliant upon you to kind of guide me but something came into my head that may be entirely imaginary um, which seemed to be that the book was written in fractals. Expand on that. It occurred to me that the way in which the material is presented allows for a subject to be announced in a small form. Then there seems to be a fan of subject matter, other subjects, and then it comes back in a second form containing the other subjects in small and then comes back again as if what were being described were, and I don't know this kind of science, but it, it, it just, I said to myself, this must be fractals. It's, I've, I've heard you were an acute reader. Um, that's, that's one of the things structurally that's going on. It's actually, um, it's actually structured like something called a Sierpinski gasket which is a very primitive kind of pyramidical fractal. Although what was really, what was structured as a Sierpinski gasket was the first, um, was, was the draft that I delivered to Michael in 94, and it went through some, I think, mercy cuts. So it's probably kind of a lopsided Sierpinski gasket now. But it's interesting. That's one of the, that's one of the structural ways that it's supposed to kind of come together. Michael is Michael Peach, the editor at Little Brown. What is a Sierpinski gasket? It would be almost impossible. I would almost have to show you. It's it's kind of a design that um, that a man named Serpinski, I believe, developed. It was quite a bit before the introduction of fractals um, and before any of the kind of um, technologies that fractals are a really useful metaphor for. Um, but it looks basically like a pyramid on acid. You know, so I don't think it's like a hugely outlandish prospect for the structuring of a book but i don't know if it really helps to think that schematically about it i had quite a different impression of what the effects of that fragmentation were or what they were reflected i mean what did you think it was there for did you have some feeling about why it was constructed in this way i mean it was making me think about a kind of montage theory which i guess is kind of something that's going on at the same point as this book is set 20s i guess whether that plays into it at all I don't know but yeah I Mm. guess I was thinking about how within that that certain times the content produced by the cut can be more important than the content of the thing itself so yeah I was thinking about what that does to the readers how they perceive these characters but also yeah just adding to this and I think for me the strongest impression definitely was adding to this idea of this kind of unease of this huge plethora of voices at times quite explicit that it's this graveyard when when the corpses get damp they get restless and kind of uneasy it becomes this cacophony of voices and that kind of almost like this moment of psychosis almost where it's completely impossible to drown out these voices that they layer up one on top of each other and it's almost like you're moving a radio dial backwards and forwards there's no control over exactly which voice you're going to get and adds to this I guess yeah almost kind of archaeological 
uh, you know, like a, a strata of, of these pained memories. Mm. Uh, so for me, yeah, it was definitely kind of about volume, I guess. So pleased you say that, Rob. I've got in my notes here the term radio dial as well. Ah, uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like these voices are always broadcasting and um, mm. it's a clamoring of voices and these, these sort of cacophonous lamentations are sort of competing to be heard and Juan Preciado is sort of tuning into them precisely like turning this dial on a a radio through the white noise occasionally uh, one of these voices will become clear with its lamentations and yeah the pain like like you suggest so for, for me it was it was much more oral than this approach to the text as fractal in structure would suggest you know that seems to me far more like a kind of visual metaphor that doesn't really work with the the content of the book i mean i could be completely wrong you know it also occurred to me that perhaps this structure also is reflective of decay you know the decay of the of the town the the ruined architecture the disintegration of the bodies buried underneath it whatever it might suggest to the people that read it it definitely feels like like something more organic than scientific in it in its approach mm. I read another article by kieran cosgrove who described it this way he said this chameleon text refuses circumscription in its chronological polyphonic soundings and abstract mutations it makes a virtue of shading off insisting as much as the delineated form that made much more sense to me to think of it in organic terms or in terms of obscurity curvature rather than <laughs> rather than these the precision repetitive self-same symmetry that, that you find in a, in, a, in a fractal there's an interesting way to think about it but i don't know how how right it feels to me i think it's also worth saying that at least contemporary mexico is an incredibly loud place i think <laughs> yeah. you know if you're if you're not used to it it's something that strikes you straight away and i don't mean that in a negative way it just is is the case and like very much in the oral tradition that there's i guess something that existed across the world people selling things or kind of like advertising promoting certain things there would have been people walking down the street shouting and this is absolutely still the case in mexico now often on the back of trucks being played out of speakers i find it very hard to believe that would be a contemporary phenomenon i think this is mm. something that actually we've lost and still very much exists in in mexico well we have we have lost it rob but mm. uh, oh yeah completely yeah but not on peckham rye which i think is like <laughs> one of the most exciting the most exciting street in in london i when i describe it to people i always think of it like i don't know medieval baghdad or something like this with just street (laughs) hawkers and preachers and music blaring out from different corners and like boxes of tomatoes just smashed on the ground or like like live (laughs) live chickens and stuff it's amazing i think anyway sorry yeah yeah, no, no, absolutely. But I mean, yeah, this is, I mean, this is absolutely true that, you know, the, the markets that I know of in London are, are kind of the closest thing you'll, you'll come to it. My nearest market here, Ridley Road, is, is exactly like that. I saw someone this summer cooking, I think, an entire shopping trolley full of calves feet with a blowtorch. This is <laughs> like the kind of real, like amazing <laughs> things. Anyway, but we're getting, we're getting off topic a bit. Yeah, um, yeah sorry. 
but uh but i think i think this i mean this is you know like it sounds like this like awful travel program but going to mexico now it's one of the things that was just amazing and that you would take back with you for sure is is the kind of vibrancy of the the kind of constant sound and i mm. think this is perhaps what's what's going on in this book too but in a kind of these echoes and the kind of murmurs are the the sedimented version of that that's kind of embedded into this ghost town so um for me definitely the sound of it is far more a thing than the kind of yeah this this visual pattern the initial silence that juan preciado encounters is perhaps speaks even more of death or absences in in this culture there's this nice passage right near the beginning where he says if i heard only silence it because i was not yet accustomed to the silence maybe because my head was still filled with sounds and voices and it's his voices here where the air was so rare i heard them even stronger it's not an approach i've ever heard spoken about i mean i know it it might be just our impression or an invention with regard to this text but it it is an interesting way to think about structuring a novel i wonder if there is work on the influence of radio on on the novel yeah it's interesting that it's because like it's certainly a trope right that you know this this link between radio and kind of like voices of the dead and uh it's like a such a strong thing from like 1900s onwards Mm. and you think it's i guess part of maybe quite a european tradition but there was certainly radio in mexico there's no there's no reason why these same things the kind of disembodied voice was quite such a strange thing Mm. and that's exactly what rufo is is writing about here so yeah i think i think it's a really valid angle to be thinking about this This town is filled with echoes. It's like they were trapped behind the walls or beneath the cobblestones. When you walk, you feel like someone's behind you, stepping in your footsteps. You hear rustlings and people laughing. Laughter that sounds used up and voices worn away by the years. Sounds like that. But I think the day will come when those sounds fade away. That was what Damiana Cisneros was telling me as we walked through the town. There was a time when night after night I could hear the sounds of a fiesta. I could hear the noise clear out at the media luna. I would walk into town to see what the uproar was about and this is what I would see. Just what you're seeing now. Nothing. No one streets as empty as they are now. Then I didn't hear anything anymore. You know, you can get worn out celebrating. That's why I wasn't surprised when it ended. Yes, Damiana Cisneros repeated, this town is filled with echoes. I'm not afraid anymore. I hear the dogs howling and I let them howl. And on windy days, I see the wind blowing leaves from the trees when anyone can see that there aren't any trees here. There must have been once. Otherwise, where do the leaves come from? (laughs) 
European society perhaps often suppresses any kind of thinking about death, or certainly, certainly in the UK anyway. Mexico obviously doesn't have that at all, and it's a society that's could maybe say it's almost obsessed with death. Thinking about it, it's very, very present in the culture, obviously in the, the Day of the Dead is the most famous way. But yeah, it really struck me as like a way, a way into thinking about this, that obviously Mexican society has this sort of syncretic version of a way of thinking about death that in Europe exists as kind of All Souls Day, things like this. But it's far more pagan than that, that you will revere the dead and there's this one day where you set out food for them and there's a, like a, a very very strong link but the more I kind of started thinking about that in relation to the book the more I thought that actually it's not what's going on here there's a kind of celebratory element of that which I think allows for a certain amount of kind of closure but also this idea of community that extends way back into the past and actually what seems to be happening here is this kind of weird stasis or um, a kind of flattening out of things where actually nothing's nothing is ever changing and that the dead here are unfulfilled and it's kind of far more in relation to an idea of purgatory I thought far less this kind of day of the dead type celebration and so many characters and at so many points someone dies within the book and then they're not given absolution because of some sin that they've committed or often because they don't have the money to pay the priest to kind Mm. of see their way and so they're now stuck in limbo for me it's Rulfo's kind of like intense criticism of a a certain type of religious idea of death I remember I think this is I don't know why death always comes up in this podcast but I do remember (laughs) us talking about it before and you were you were talking about the quite interesting Polish traditions of certain points was it even a thing of cleaning the ancestors bones or is that specifically Mexico as in do you do that in in Poland yeah in Poland no no, not to my knowledge, but the version of All Souls Day here is, in my experience, quite quite the opposite of what I expected. So not particularly solemn, mm. you know, re- respectful, but a kind of festival atmosphere as well, you know, so that you have meat being grilled outside the cemetery, people selling sweets and flowers and, and lanterns and so on within the grounds and families gathering and, and laying patterned flowers on the, on the graves and so on. I imagine, I mean, it's it's not it's not quite to the extent that it's celebrated in in mexico right but i think there are some similarities between the traditions but cleaning of the ancestors bones no i haven't haven't come across that uh, okay yeah i think that is mexico then <laughs> but the but the kind of limbo state that you talking about or like purgatorial aspect of, mm. of these voices is really interesting i suppose in terms of what happens to Juan Preciado. Initially, in the in the text, there is a present tense, and then these voices that recall their own lives or yeah, their own histories within the town. But eventually, those two currents become almost the same thing, and and Juan Preciado is kind of subsumed into that limbo state as well. You know, physically dying, but also becoming one of those voices. So that the novel loses its present tense eventually. The, the narrative is dominated by memory. And then increasingly so, until the present tense or the living reality of the book is only sensible through, I guess, the the rain, uh, <laughs> the rain beating on the earth above Juan Preciado's head. Yeah, and that we don't return to that. So, so that in a certain sense, the narrative also dies. Right, the story dies, and it becomes, yeah. and it all becomes the how to put it. It, it becomes entirely a narrative of composed of dead voices or voices within this 
this limbo. So I suppose death subsumes everything within it. And interestingly, I suppose, actually, in terms of structural things, as it moves on, the memory or the memories of Pedro Paramo begin to dominate more and more. And it's interesting that perhaps in a mirror of what's happening to the, the landscape, even in death, his his kind of like memories or his, his kind of broadcasts from <laughs> the death begin to take over completely yeah and that obviously we end on it but the kind of plethora of voices you know there's there's far more passages towards the end where it's um long descriptions or kind of like uh, long long passages spent looking through his eyes uh, mm-hmm. more and more but and i don't know if this is even a useful route to go down but when you were talking earlier about this moment where you suddenly realize that you know is the narrator dead yeah uh, obviously felt exactly the same but then i started asking myself at what point would like was he always dead yeah 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 and because the the description of the death you know is is this point in the middle of the book which comes kind of like right in the middle right yeah where suddenly says like the you know these murmurs killed me but is this actually just the point that he realizes he's dead you know because there's all these sorts of things about that description of that scene of being found dead in the in the town square Mm. but the people who find him is this people finding him dead because they are dead or is this a description of him dying you know as a as a child perhaps when all these people are still alive it's hard to tell and i'm not sure how useful it is to even think about it but i quite like this idea that perhaps in this town because of what the nature of the life that they live within the revolution and the war that comes afterwards and the kind of hardship that they have to endure Mm. this barrier between life and death is perhaps quite fragile anyway (laughs) Yeah. And that there isn't necessarily, that distinction isn't quite as clear as, as it could be otherwise. Yeah, it's a very porous boundary, isn't it, between them? It did occur to me, it is something I thought about a little bit, and I wonder what it would do to the novel's generic status or to the central conceit of the, the novel, you know, the thing that makes it, I suppose, magical realism. That would be sort of predicated upon Juan Preciado being able to hear these voices in, you know, in a kind of living reality or encounter these people in a, li- in a living reality you know without that there are no ghosts exactly in this in this novel or everything plays out on the spectral plane or spectral version of this town so it changes it quite a lot I think it's not entirely what I felt I mean I because there is this moment when he yeah he talks about like shivering with sickness but it, you're right it doesn't have any context really does it mm. do we learn what's happening to him exactly when he starts shivering in in the town square and then dying no not really he just says that he was um yeah goes goes to the plaza because he's kind of drawn by the the sounds of people yeah uh, i think he maybe even says that he, he feels cold and he desires the warmth of other people so perhaps you know this coldness because there is a really interesting thing that goes on with um, with kind of temperature within the book that yeah the the beginning half is this kind of sweltering heat constantly ending in my copy page 45 in this passage that i i really love because it's kind of repulsive almost where he's in bed with this woman and it describes waking up yes as the heat woke me just before midnight and the sweat the woman's body was made of earth layered in crusts of earth it was crumbling melting into a pool of mud i felt myself swimming in the sweat steaming from her body and i couldn't get enough air to breathe Mm. this idea of like the body next to you kind of melting into this pool of hot mud it's such an evocative you know i'm sure anyone who's uh, woken up in the middle of the night way too hot whether through yeah. through fever or just being somewhere very warm is like a real it's a horrible sensation and that captures it so 
incredibly well. But after that, suddenly there's a there's a coolness that creeps into the book in a way that isn't in the first half. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that would certainly add weight to the idea that there is a there is an actual death that goes on there, that it's not always the narrator kind of guiding us through isn't always dead. I don't know that we can say for sure, but I, I certainly had the impression that he was alive upon his entry to, to the town. But uh, I could be wrong about that. And I think it you know it's possible to make the case for, for either option. I was interested in why the mother, is it Dolores? Mm. Why she seems to have this sort of idyllic idea of the town Comala. In these initial descriptions of what Juan is going to find there, Mm. it seems like this sort of verdant, beautiful, pastoral idyll, doesn't it? I wondered what you you made of the dead townspeople's um, versions of the life of the town when it was living. Because it seems to me that the further we go into the book, the more we learn of the tragedy and hopelessness and difficulty of, of the town's past, right? And it doesn't seem idyllic by any means. I was kind of thinking that, for me anyway, the character of Pedro Paramo has this like dual role like in one way a very real character and we we kind of understand his history but also this kind of mythological stand-in for kind of everything that Rulfo perhaps sees as, as wrong with what's happening in Mexico at this point with the rise of Pedro Paramo and his power the town literally becomes less inhabitable you know certainly after the death of his wife Susanna you know he deliberately lets the the fields go to waste and they're you know describes as a, a plague coming across it and I guess for Juan Preciado's mother they marry at the very very beginning of Pedro Paramo's rise to power you know this is like a that is the reason they marry to to throw off some of the the debt that he owes to her family seemingly she she leaves not long into that marriage so perhaps she hasn't seen as much of the kind of destruction and so her memory is is still of the town Mm. as it was before Pedro Paramo in in what he kind of stands for in the kind of the war and destruction and the, the kind of greed of the landowners. This element at the very beginning of the book that I think is, I think he said, a, yeah, by the mother in her instruction to Juan when she tells him to go and find Pedro Paramo and she says, some call him one thing, some another, I'm sure he will want to know you. And it's kind of in that vague thing of some call him one thing, some another, for me anyway, like highlighted that perhaps he actually stands for something slightly greater than this this one character that he's a kind of archetype for these these people that destroying this kind of rural way of life or destroying the country so yeah i kind of saw it as a as a movement i mean perhaps quite a romantic idea of what what the town might have been like before just to go to one thing you said there was uh, that some call him one thing some call another the first uh, description we have of Pedro Paramo is from one of his, well, a character that transpires to be one of his sons, uh, Abundio. And when the narrator, Juan, asks who Pedro is, we we get this response that he is living bile. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I checked the Spanish of that as well. Un rencor vivo, so a, a living rancor a living hatred so it Mm. certainly places him on this almost mythical or legendary plane for those who are left behind in the town he to me i thought we could consider that he has a status a bit like the fisher king or something you know or or an ironic recasting of, of that kind of figure and it might be the wrong way to think about it this book might not be rooted in european legends or traditions but i suppose i mean it by way of analogy more than anything else 
So he's a figure that seems to be intimately connected with the land. And when he is dissatisfied or ill or wounded in some manner, the land fails with, with him. That portion that you were talking about, you know, when, when Susanna dies, we get this passage. Don Pedro spoke to no one. He never left his room. He swore to wreak vengeance on Comala. I will cross my arms and Komala will die of hunger. This degree of power over the land and its in- inhabitants is kind of legendary, but it also yeah, reinforces that intimate connection between Paramo's state and the state of the land. A grey morning, not cold, but gray. The peeling began with the largest bell. The others chimed in. Some thought the bells were ringing for high mass, and doors began to open wide. Not all the doors opened. Some remained closed, where the indolent still lay in bed waiting for the bells to advise them that morning had come. But the ringing lasted longer than it should have. And it was not only the bells of the large church, but those in Sangre de Cristo and Cruz Verde and the Santuario. Noon came and the tolling continued. Night fell and day and night the bells continued, all of them stronger and louder until the ringing blended into a deafening lament. People had to shout to hear what they were trying to say. What could it be? They asked each other. After three days, everyone was deaf. It was impossible to talk above the clanging that filled the air, but the bells kept ringing, ringing. Some cracked with a hollow sound like a clay pitcher. Donna Susanna died. Who? The senora? Your senora? Pedro Paramo's senora? People began arriving from other places, drawn by the endless peeling. They came from Contla, as if on a pilgrimage. And even farther, a circus showed up, who knows from where, with a whirly gig and flying chairs, and musicians. First they came as if they were onlookers, but after a while, they settled in and even played concerts. And so, little by little, the event turned into a fiesta. Kamala was bustling with people, boisterous and noisy, just like the feast days when it was nearly impossible to move through the village. The bells fell silent, but the fiesta continued. There was no way to convince people that this was an occasion for mourning, nor was there any way to get them to leave. Just the opposite. More kept arriving. The media luna was lonely and silent. The servants walked around with bare feet and spoke in low voices. Susana's son Juan was buried, and a few people in Kamala even realized it. They were having a fair. There were cockfights and music, 
lotteries, and the howls of drunken men. The light from the village reached as far as the media luna, like an aureole in the gray skies, because those were gray days, melancholy days for the media luna. Don Pedro spoke to no one. He never left his room. He swore to wreak vengeance on Komala. I will cross my arms and Kamala will die of hunger. And that was what happened. I've read him described as a cacique, which is a word that was new to me. Did you come across that term as well, Rob? Oh, no. So I think it, it describes essentially like a local boss landowner with a degree of political sway, which certainly seems to characterize him quite quite well and that maybe we can determine from his memories that we'd, we might be dealing with the, the very late 19th century and the early early 20th century probably some parts of it in this period between 1900 and 1910 when Porfirio Diaz was still in power but certain crises were were emerging so I did a little bit of reading about this, and um, as I understand it, Diaz did a lot to modernize Mexico, but that his regime was kind of described as authoritarian and that he favored the elites. And there are a lot of a lot of issues to do with land, like common land, the, the selling off or privatization of unoccupied or, or common land. And it, it really reminded me a lot of the English enclosures, actually, a, a similar kind of mm. kind of thing. Um, but yeah, towards the end of his, his time in office, office there were economic and agricultural crises and the price of corn skyrockets and we see land dispossession and so on and these revolutionary groups like regional factions start start to emerge Uh, and we see in the text how Pedro Paramo kind of casts his allegiances purely wherever seems to be fit at a given moment and he often does so falsely you know for instance he invites this group of revolutionaries to his home and then pledges to support them financially before withdrawing it he's like really brutal um, and lots of details of his of his coldness his betrayal of people so he's quite disloyal as well sort of gradually emerge so as a figure in this political landscape i guess that he is what rufo would regard as a poisonous element that really corrupts mexico i mean so as well as having this sort of legendary status i think maybe has quite a lot of political significance as well the first point that we're perhaps introduced to that is uh, quite early on in the book when um, juan is is kind of found in in the room that he's he stayed in the first night by i can't remember if it's who he's with at this point damiana perhaps but she asks him how he got into the room because it's it's been locked ever since they had hung a man in there and and left him to turn into leather and then shortly afterwards, we find out the reason they hung the man was because they kind of made up these charges about him putting up fences around Pedro Paramo's land, which is, mm. in fact, it, it belongs to the man who's hung. And so, yeah, absolutely. This uh, figure, I think, definitely also represents the, the very real greed of the of the land disputes that are going on at this point. Mm. It's also interesting that there's almost a kind of biblical comeuppance that the only son that Pedro Paramo recognised, uh, Miguel, Paramo dies because he can't bother to to go round one of the new fences that his father's put up so he asks his horse to jump it and the mm. horse falls and kills him you know this is perhaps a another one of these kind of pivots within the book a point when things start to change and we start to see yeah a shift in Pedro 
Paramo's humanity. That's what makes him such a complex figure, I suppose. And that's why I was left not knowing quite how to feel about, about him and his influence on, on the land or in the town. Mm. Get to the end of the book and he's uh, outlived every single one of his sons that we meet. You know, obviously mm. Juan and Ubundio and then Miguel as well. And so there is a, I mean, not a particularly satisfying one, but there's a, almost a, a moral to the end of it in that he's left his body is, is collapsed like a pile of rocks says, mm. and there's there's kind of nothing nothing left to show for the uh, everything that he's he's claimed no no children nothing so you know just destroyed everything around mm. yeah which is another sort of connection that i made with the the fisher king mm. whose impotence is also reflected mm. in the land right and interestingly as well his name well, you you sent me this. I mean, I've read this in a, a few places. Uh, yeah. You sent me this interesting article on the naming strategies in the book. Paramo can mean like a, a high barren plain. Sometimes it's translated as wasteland as well, right? So his, even in his name sort of embodies what he leaves behind in that world. But one of the complexities of it is, I suppose, not only the degree of sympathy that we might gain for him in this tragic love for Susanna San Juan, whose love is never returned. That unrequited love casts the monster or the, you know, this, this sim- symbol for everything that's corrupted mm. about the, the political situation in, in, the, in the region in this sort of supremely tragic light. And, and we might even see a kind of, you know, depending on, on how we feel, we might see a kind of nobility in this gesture of forsaking everything for the memory of this of this love Mm. but i wonder if that complexity is also reflected in the idea that while he's living you know his rule is characterized by like horror and usury but his giving up is what leads to the fall of the town into disrepair his inactivity the inactivity of this cacique figure could be said to lead to the town's downfall as well so i wondered if what you thought you know did you think that the rot had set in already as it were during his time governing the region and he the the land was already spoiled it was already corrupted too many people's lives were ruined or do you think that it is that decision at the end to let the town starve I think the former, I think there's this real kind of like cycle of violence because obviously also his own, you know, Pedro Parama's own father is is killed in a land dispute. Juan Rulfo had the same thing happen. So there must be, I don't know, I think there's an idea that there's a a cycle that needs to be broken that in this book very much isn't broken. Mm. And by the end of it, when his kind of henchman is is making reports, you know, he says um, at one point, you know, now we're with the Villistas, now we're with uh, Caracho, or I can't remember actually how you pronounce his name, but they're, you know, on, on complete, complete opposite sides of the war. Mm. And, you know, you get a very terse reply each time where he just says, fine, I don't care, whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's the idea that these forces are much bigger than, you know, for Pedro Paramo is representative of what happens at this kind of local level. But there's this huge swirling political and religious system, which is causing huge amounts of misery for people. And that actually there's a the apathy that comes from his position is is kind of just as bad as the active destruction i mean it's quite quite bleak really when you when you get to it because there doesn't seem an obvious way that 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 circle can be broken
One thing that really struck me on this this reading was the kind of very short section on the indigenous group that comes to the market to sell their things because I, yeah, I was just interested that they you know they were certainly subject to the same elements literally uh, in the you know this this scene takes place in this kind of torrential rain and it's it's just the women there because the men are out in the fields cutting new channels so that the the young crops don't get washed away but just their disposition seems entirely different from the townspeople you know they're they're joking and wishing that they had pulque to drink which is like a fermented cactus drink mm. like alcoholic and they don't sell very much because it's pouring with rain and they say okay not today and, and kind of wander off and i don't know i think in in some ways you know if this whole narrative was transported into a kind of different context it might be a slightly overly romantic view of a local poorer population but in this handling it sort of seems like maybe Rulfo's suggesting that there there is this slightly other community that exists outside of the the misery that people are forcing mm. onto themselves yeah no, that's true but i also regarded it as something that had gone as well it's part of these murmurs right or part of the voices from the past though that outside view is present and I think is you know there's a lightness to it that perhaps isn't there in most of the most of these voices mm. but um that too is is no longer there and the town of Kamala is any form of life there is gone that it's it's just yeah. emptiness and, and desolation left I guess I was thinking because they the kind of last point we see them is um talking about yeah they they walk off towards Apango this this other town mm-hmm. or, or you know some other place and it says another day they said and they walked down the road telling jokes and laughing Mm. and so I kind of wonder it felt like that another day felt like maybe there was a kind of longevity in there that they exist this place Apango maybe isn't going to suffer the same fate yeah trying to kind of retrospectively project the work that Rulfo does the anthropological work that Mm. he does with indigenous communities I I wondered whether this was something that he was pointing to perhaps as a perhaps a way out I don't know the the kind of misery seems very structural in terms of you know it's about the the governance or lack of and for me the book was very critical of the Catholic Church in terms of talks of one of the female characters who is described as like perfectly good but then at the very last minute, you know, her sorrows become too much and she takes her own life and the priest refuses to give her absolution. Yeah. And deep down, he, he perhaps knows that she deserves it, but he, he's not allowed to do it. And yeah. um, the misery is, for me anyway, yeah, very tied up with these things that perhaps the, the group, the indigenous group that come in are, are separate from. I don't know. All right, so how many shirts does... Juan Rulfo's Pedro Paramo get from you, Rob? I think I might go for an... Oh, gosh, it's hard, isn't it? I feel like I give things too high and then, you know, maybe something's going to come along that's just amazing and I won't have any more shirts to give it. You've been saving that uh, last shirt. You haven't given anything a 10 yet. Yes. But I think I might give this a 9. This is what I was considering. I just really enjoy it. I mean, it's very personal. You know, I've I've spent time in Mexico and I really love it as a place. And for me, this this means something very different because I think I can project certain images onto it. I mean, it's... It's very bleak. We've, you know, we've kind of discussed it at length and ended at a very bleak place. But a really fantastic book, and yeah, structurally, I find it fascinating. And yeah, just, just yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And now read it three times, and I'll happily read it again. So yeah, I think uh, I might give it a nine. 
how how do you feel on this on this uh, rereading? Yeah, I think um, I'm going to give it the same, Rob. I think this definitely deserves a, a nine. Yeah, because of my previous experience with with the book, I wasn't expecting to like this to quite the degree that I did, and it it really really overwhelmed me this time. And I think it's going to become one that I I keep going back to in the future. I can absolutely see why people refer to it as a as a masterpiece. Yeah, just. Adored it. Absolutely mesmerising. So nine shirts easily. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. If you enjoy the music on the show, I compose the vast majority of it myself and it can be found on SoundCloud under the name Sherds Music. Most of it is available to download for free. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm.